0: All right, guys, welcome back to the Yes, it Means Yes podcast. On this week's episode, we're really excited to have guest Allison Wood, author of Being Lolita, which I'm going to get her to definitely talk about in a minute. Um, as usual, my name is Faith Namshep. I'm the ARP Outreach and Counseling Coordinator with Rape Counselors, and I'm going to let Madison introduce herself and then Allison.
1: Hi, I'm Madison Maggio. I am actually the Community Outreach Coordinator and Victim Advocate here at RCEA. I'm Allison Wood, I am the author of Being Lolita, and I'm a writer and teacher and casual advocate, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and and, yeah, very excited to be here. Well, we're really, really
0: excited to have you and just talk to you. Um, I guess for a little overview for our listeners, um, I was watching the Hulu documentary, Keep This Between Us. And I had seen Allison on the documentary talking and she mentioned her memoir. I'm a sucker for memoirs in their entirety anyways, but especially when they relate to what I do, you know, day to day in life. So I immediately went and got Being Lolita. Can you give us just like a brief overview of the memoir Um, kind of what it's about? Obviously, you know, memoir is a story of your life, but just for our listeners out there who may not have heard of it.
1: Being Lolita is the story of when I was 17 and 18 in an abusive experience with an English teacher in my high school. It centers on that, but it also traces my life in many ways of how that affected me and how the patterns created from that truly impactful experience have impacted the rest of my life. I really just like referring to... Uh, that time with myself and the teacher as having a relationship um, I you know I really hate it when people are like oh you dated your teacher he was your boyfriend I'm like no you we were not dating um, there's no way that you can describe a 27 year old adult man taking advantage of a student in his high school where he teaches as dating he, is not her boyfriend right there is this innate power balance power imbalance that negates the possibility for there to be any kind of equality um equal standing in that kind of in it to make it a relationship it is inherently an abusive situation and you know that's what happened to me and so i wrote this memoir because i felt like what happened to me is not as unique or uncommon as perhaps one may think it is, or at least it's not how you think it is. Oftentimes when we see student-teacher relationships portrayed in pop culture, it's very scandalous, but issues of consent aren't really talked about. You know, we have, Lolita. I mean, we have um, there's a, a story in Gossip Girl, a plot in Gossip Girl that has to do with a student teacher relationship. Um, It's always incredibly sexualized, incredibly romanticized, and glamorized. But in actuality, is an, it is an incredibly horrible thing that happens to people. And I feel like that had not been captured on the page anywhere near enough as it should have been. And I just felt really compelled to talk about it and to share my experience in a way that hopefully people could read it and understand how this happens um, in a way that maybe they couldn't afford.
0: So that's the book. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say that was a great description. So it kind of sounds like you were wanting to tell a story that maybe you would heard a lot, but no one had actually put the pen to paper and really shared
1: Absolutely. I mean, we've had so many examples of uh older man, younger woman relationships. I mean, the the, you know, uh the May-December romance, right? Even in film all the time in popular movies, you know, it'll be uh George Clooney, who's like in his 60s dating a 20-year-old. There was that. I thought fabulous, go around on social media about how Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio cannot date anybody over the age of 25 because he never has. And it's like his girlfriend's turned 25 and time to go. Um, You know, it's just something that is so acceptable in pop culture. It's not even questioned and not just in pop culture, pop culture is just a reflection of our larger culture, right? Of the constructions that we place in our world, what we say is and is not okay and we are teaching young women that they should not expect to be equals to their partners that they should not expect this level of respect and care and understanding of them as holistic creatures as not just you know someone beautiful and young and you know whatever um as someone who is capable of being an intellectual, of being mature, being able to make their own decisions. So I think that it's really a disadvantage to young women and also frankly to young men because it and it tells them that that is that is the kind of man that they should be. It is their job to perpetuate those roles. It's unfair to them as well. You know, gender stereotypes harm all of us. So I really felt compelled to try and criticize that and Ask questions about that in my book because again I think many people could and did hear about what happened to me and just be like oh well you just must have been you know very mature for your age like you know well like well you weren't 14 so what's the problem he wasn't married the number of times people have commented that well he wasn't married and i'm like really that's the worst part of this not the damage that it did that it did to me but the fact that it did not bear that it, it did not damage a wife like w- you know it's just so <sighs> the discussion and the way that it's portrayed the way it being the way that teacher student uh, older man younger women relationships are portrayed is just so damaging and so harmful and i find it really upsetting and really sad and frankly in my own experience devastating and i i tried to capture that i tried to get that on the page in a way that could be accessible and relatable and you know i i like to think i did that okay i like to think (laughs) that i did all right with that um i've heard from hundreds i think literally i'm up in the thousands now. Of women who have been through similar experiences, ranging from, you know, the most heartbreaking ones are teenagers who are in it, um, who are involved with a teacher or a coach or some sort of older man. And they read my book or they see the documentary and are like, oh my God, what am I doing? I don't know, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how to get out. Um, those are very difficult one, uh, DMs to get. And then, you know, I also get messages from women who are, you know, in their 60s looking back at something that happened to them 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and really sort of looking at it in a critical, thoughtful way that maybe they had not had just frankly the support to do. They didn't even have the option presented to them that, oh, this is another way of looking at what happened to you. Um so, yeah, I've heard from lots of women, almost almost entirely women, almost entirely women. I think I've only heard from a handful of men um, the over the past two years, but many, many, many other survivors and victims. So to me, that suggests that my story is not only one that was not that had not been told enough, but one that more people should hear and is a story that is important to tell.
0: So I think the word that we've been kind of dancing around the whole time is grooming.
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, (laughs) Yes, it's so funny because when I was first writing the book, we weren't really talking about grooming. I mean, to think about it, I was was writing the book four or five years ago now, which is wild to me. (laughs) That it's like, oh my goodness, it's been that long. But, you know, I was writing the book, I mean, really, I was writing the book when we were like seven, five, six, seven years ago. And we weren't, the word grooming wasn't out there in the way that it is now. It just sort of wasn't part of kind of pop culture vernacular. So while obviously and overtly what happened to me was grooming, unquestionably. It's just funny how language changes. And I think it's so wonderful that the word grooming is being used in a mainstream way in pop culture because it opens up the discussion of consent, of power imbalance, of abuse, of danger for young women in ways that before we were talking about grooming just weren't being considered. You know, And so I think it's really, really great that that word has come into conversation. And I think obviously my book is very much talking about that, even if it doesn't use the word in it. I don't know if I ever use the word grooming in my book, actually. Probably. You know, I, I must have used the word grooming in there, but it's not. <laughs> I must have. I'm certain that I used the word in there at least a little bit. But
0: I feel like I saw grooming.
1: I think yeah, I- it was probably in there, but it wasn't like one of the... Uh, sort of like primary words that, uh, we used, we being, you know, the team at Macmillan books and Flatiron books and how we were sort of positioning and talking about it sort of wasn't those kind of like, uh, primary words that we went to. Um, whereas I feel like if the book came out now, two years later, um, it probably would have been at the forefront in the description of the book. Um, but yeah, I was groomed and abused by my teacher when I was 17 and 18. That's what happened. And it was awful.
0: <laughs> I think so. One of the reasons that I found, I think your story, for lack of better words, so interesting is I'm, you know, have grown up in thankfully a more forward era where grooming, it was used um, I've been okay. working at the Rape right Crisis Center for years now. That's kind of always been something that I've heard since we started. Um, and I think that it's funny, even just what I've seen from that perspective, is even grooming, you kind of automatically go to the five, six-year-old kid being groomed as a older person. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw your story and also the other stories and Keep This Between Eyes, I realized that that was... St- just as much grooming it was just looked so much more different because of the ages of you know it being a high school kid and also how in society's mind it was more acceptable because you were older rather than it just being grooming it was almost like levels of grooming or worse types of grooming so I think that's one of the things that was very interesting when you were reading your book because we have a prevention education program within our organization and um, we often would have kids who came up to us after we did teen vi- dating violence presentations and expressed to us, Hey, I've been in this situation or I'm currently in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lack of, I guess, knowledge typically there made me also want to reach out because it's like, well, if they're not seeing this as kind of like abuse, I can only imagine, you know. What else is being portrayed to them? And if they only know grooming as, you know, younger kids, then maybe to them, it would be an acceptable thing if them or a friend or a family member were to be in a similar situation to you.
1: Right. I mean, I think, you know, I think that grooming, while for a long time, we as in sort of we, the mainstream culture did sort of strictly apply the word grooming to uh, younger children. I think at its core, grooming is the same no matter what age we're talking about. It's the same behavior. It's the same steps. It's the same uh, escalation of behavior on the predator's part. I mean, it's, it's really far more the same than different. And, I think also something interesting is I remember when I was working on the book, I was looking at websites like Rain, which is such a wonderful resource, um, or you know, some of the other kind of big uh, um, advocacy organizations um, in our country, and none of them were talking about grooming in particular, which I thought was really interesting. And I, you know, they were talking about sexual abuse and, you know, all of those things, but they weren't actually talking about grooming. And I think that that has perhaps become a bit more included in how we think and talk about sexual abuse, in particular, sexual abuse of uh, young women, children. Um, I think that the reason that we find the grooming of high school students to be Like you said, it's less bad, it's more acceptable. That's a direct reflection of the sexualization of young women in our culture. You know, that's a direct reflection of that. I mean, there are entire porn genres about student-teacher relationships. 18, you know, she just turned 18. You know, it's like, oh, she's finally legal. I mean, the way that we talk about, you know, pop stars, actresses, You know, and then that, of course, trickles down to how we talk about actual girls in our immediate lives. So I think that all of those things which contribute to the grooming and abuse of high school girls who are children. Let's be realistic. They are children. Um, You know, I've taught creative writing at New York University undergraduates. And I love teaching. I love teaching. I love working with young women. It's one of my very favorite things to do. Uh, when I teach creative writing, I um, my syllabus is almost in t- is pretty much exclusively women and non binary folks and queer writers, and it's just it's so exciting. Anyway, um, <laughs> I write about this a little bit in the book, but a huge, I mean, massive turning point for me in understanding what happened to me was. Literally the first day I walked into a classroom as a professor, and my students were mostly freshmen, which means they were 18, 19, maybe even 17, a couple of them. And just looking at them and just how young they were. Just how young they were. You know, I was it was like a slap in the face of how. Just how different an, an 18-year-old girl looks versus how I, as an 18-year-old girl, felt and thought about myself. And just this vast, I mean, <laughs> this vast ocean of difference in the reality and then sort of my own... You know, uh, culturally culturally constructed fantasy of who I was and who I could be and what I was capable of and, you know, all of that. I mean, 18, 19 year olds are children. They just are. You know, many of them have have perhaps never made themselves a meal from scratch. Uh, They don't know how to do their own laundry. They have never lived on their own. They have never paid rent. You know, many of them don't have credit cards until they get to until they get to college. Um, I mean, I can go on and on about the skills that freshmen and sophomores and juniors and seniors and undergraduates do not have. You know, uh, freshmen can't drink yet. They're not legally allowed to drink alcohol. They cannot rent a car. I mean, you know, the fact that we talk about 18 as the age of adulthood is just so arbitrary. And I think is so, in many ways, Unfair because by doing that we cut off young people from some inherent legal rights, legal protections. You know, when you turn 18, you are losing a lot of protection underneath the law that you would be, uh, that you would have the right to have. And yeah, I mean, I just, I in no way mean to (laughs) disavow the strength, the intellect, the Maturity, the power of young women. I'm in no way uh, taking away from that. But we can hold multiple things. And I think we also need to acknowledge 18 and 19-year-olds are still children. And that's even older than I was when I was in this abusive experience with my teacher. And literally seeing... Eighteen nine year old, eighteen and 19, 19 year old young women in front of me, especially as a professor. So me having this power imbalance, me being on the opposite side of things, that was a that was a tough day of realization. That was a rough one. Um, and the other thing, the the other thing that I <laughs> learned um, by being a professor was how vulnerable those girls were. It is so obvious which girls are having a tough time. So obvious. It's like they're screaming it. I mean, they're obviously not. <laughs> but it just like it emanates from them that they are having a tough time, that they are vulnerable, that they are struggling with, you know, with depression, with insecurity, with you can just tell. and I was shocked by that, because again, that's something that I never, ever would have thought about myself, especially at the time. Um, but now, looking back, oh my goodness, you know, I was such, such easy prey. I mean, I'm certain that uh, that my vulnerability was <laughs> very clear. My vulnerability was very, very clear to anyone in any room any adult in any room could have easily clocked that wow this girl is having a struggle this girl's someone we need to keep an eye out for because i really find teaching to be a sacred duty like i'm not exaggerating like i really do feel like it is a gift to be in a classroom to be helping young people to have that honor to do that i take that very seriously and I think especially as as a teacher in a high school, you should even more be taking that seriously. And part of your job is not just to teach a student about books, but to keep them safe, right? To help them navigate growing up in a way that is safe, that is supportive. Learning is not just about on a... Learning is not just on a chalkboard. It is learning how to navigate the world. And, you know, that was really... I think becoming a professor was devastating to me in a in a way that I sort of wasn't prepared for and was very unexpected but was, you know, helpful. <laughs> really it was it was incredibly insightful and it really it also really made me much more kind and understanding and sort of sympathetic and empathetic to myself. Um, because it's very easy to kind of get stuck in anger, you know, you're so stupid. Why didn't you see what was happening to you? You know, you deserved this. You should, you know, you should have done X, you should have done Y, like just a lot of blame and shame, which of course are things that we are taught as young women to, you know, to take on. And I think by being literally faced with the kind of person that I was at that age, um, made me acknowledge just how vulnerable I was and, you know, think much more kindly of myself. So, yeah, I mean, teaching has really been illuminative, uh, illuminative in a very interesting way. very hard way. but good.
0: Well, I think um, and something I' had this as like one of the questions, but it sounds like that you um, had a position of power. And, the <laughs> student, and rather than seeing it as an opportunity to take advantage, you saw it as an honor and something to protect.
1: Oh, absolutely. Which
0: sounds like the difference between, obviously, a teacher doing their job correctly and a teacher being a predator. Um, not using the power that's been bestowed on them to, you know, harm their students or take advantage of their students. But rather than understanding the privilege it is. And working to build them up and protect them and encourage them and push them to be everything they could. So, you know, with relationships, I think we don't often think of the way power impacts consent and just relationships in general. Um, And I think that was very obviously displayed in your book, how the power that he had and the position that he had had so much effect on you in even just simple, simple ways. Like if you had wanted to end the relationship, relationship, say in high school, was that even an option for you? Cause you have to see this person every day walking through the school.
1: No, it really would not have been an option in -hmm. a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, um, something else that happened when I began teaching was I got really angry I got really angry at what he did to me. I got so angry and I sort of tapped into this, frankly, in some ways rage about the power that he had and that he used against me and the manipulation of power. And it it made me angry in all new ways. And in ways I really just sort of wasn't angry, again, because I feel like the anger was sort of covered up by this blame and shame um, Self-blame, self-shame, um, but, you know, I mean, consent is so much more than no means no and yes means yes, right? I was technically, literally saying yes a lot of the times, but was it a fully informed, knowledgeable, you know, uh, holistic consent? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, I write about in the book one time about how we got, we get into like a little fight about something. Um, I can't remember what was about off the top of my head, but we get into a fight in um, shop class and uh, he's doing study hall and I'm just hanging out in his study hall, which also is shocking to me looking back. How did none of, well, not, I shouldn't say that, other teachers knew I have found out since the book came out that administrators were aware other teachers were aware maybe not of the full extent but uh I was not as good at hiding it as I thought that I was at 17 again shocking shocking as an adult looking back at this um but uh you know so I anyway I was in I was in his study hall not where I was supposed to be so it's like who, who People who just let this go. <laughs> Again, sort of just like I, I have found that my blame and anger has shifted um, way towards myself, towards the people who could, who should have been, whose job it was to be keeping me safe in a place where I legally had to be every single day, right? Students have to go to school. If you are a young person in this country, unless you're being homeschooled, you have to go to school that's not an option uh so one of the examples I give in the book is of <laughs> sort of a great example of the power and balance of our relationship we get into a little spat about something I don't remember what it was I'm he's we're in we're in the shop in the shop classroom it's his study hall not supposed to be there and so I storm out into the hallway like you know I'm not I don't want to talk to you about this anymore and he follows me out and he's like, Miss Wood, come back here. And I had to go back. I had to stop, turn around, and go back to him. While he was, you know, and he would, and, you know, he was like, how dare you, like, what are you doing? You're embarrassing me. Like, you know, told me off, basically. And I had to stand there and take it. Because otherwise, he could send me to the principal's office. You know? And, I mean, it's. It's just so silly to even think about how <laughs> how unbalanced this relation, again, sort of using the you know, quote unquote relationship was. And yeah, I mean, it it wasn't really an option for me to leave. It wasn't an option for me to for me to stop it or for me to, you know, get out of it it just it wasn't even possible it was entirely on his terms entirely start to finish it was his terms and when things sort of cooled down that was his call when when we were seeing each other far more often secretly of course when things were getting far more sexual that was his call he very much controlled sort of like what was happening and not happening with us um and even though I thought I had some power now 20 years later, it is wildly clear to me that I had none. And I was truly at like the mercy of what this adult man uh, wanted from me. And again, that's just sort of the thing that it's really heartbreaking. It's really sad. Um, You know, people a lot of times will ask me about the book, like, well, at least you must've gotten closure. And I'm like, that's not how this has worked. You know, um, they talk, you know, they ask me about, well, you must have found, you must have had catharsis. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no. uh, Writing this book was heartbreaking and frankly, in a lot of ways, devastating because I had to face what truly happened to me and the grief of who I might have been if that hadn't happened to me. And just, you know, how sad that is to think about and to recognize and to realize. And then again, you know, since the book came out, I've only <laughs> I've only heard uh, even worse things about, you know, that people knew, that people were aware of what was happening and no one did anything. And then to hear, you know, from hundreds and thousands of people that this is happening or happened to them. I mean, it's it's been incredibly hard and there is no closure. From this, you know, I people a lot of times people ask me about healing. Well, how did you heal from this? I don't know if I believe in healing. I believe that things get better. I absolutely believe that. I believe things get better. I believe that time. And, you know, uh, self-care in the sort of in the real way that self-care means, not, you know, drawing a, a hot bath and <laughs> over getting a pedicure, self-care and, you know, the way it's shifting and how you talk to yourself and the way you think about yourself and, you know, the story that you tell about yourself to yourself and to others um, and therapy, <laughs> big proponent of therapy. Um, I feel like that has helped with healing, but I don't think abuse, uh, you can't take it back. You can't change it. You are entirely changed and impacted in negative ways. And I think that when we talk about, you know, oh, it made you stronger, you know, I, I think that's just sort of thinking happy thoughts about it. Um, so yeah. You touched on the like victim blaming that a lot of victims and survivors do often like, Oh, like I did do this. So that's probably why this. And like, that's such like a a negative mindset that we like as victims and survivors, like that they put in their head, like, well, if I didn't do this and like, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Um, I'm curious when it comes, like, to you personally, like, how do you or, like, did you stop yourself from, like, that victim-blaming mindset? Well, I actually really think the word victim is interesting. I think, I think starting with how we, the the language that we use, I really do believe that language is so, language is so important. Um, it's so important in the way that we talk about consent, in the way that, you know, we, the fact that, Grooming has sort of come into conversation in ways that it wasn't even 10 years ago. Uh, and I think that I feel very strongly that we should be using the word victim a lot more often. I really believe in the power of the word victim. Because I think that in the movement to use the word survivor, to try to reframe, Uh, what happens, what has happened to women. I think survivor flattens the experience. I think when we talk about survivors, we are talking about, you know, the good part. Oh, you're better now. Oh, you survived, you got stronger. You know, I think that survivor is a word that frankly makes people feel better, right? The word survivor I think really is a word focused on the person saying it versus actually the person's experience of what happened, right? I think it makes us all feel a little bit better, like, oh, well, they're survivors. It's okay. You know, um, it's taking the focus away from what happened. And while, of course, there is power in doing that, and that is important, but I think at this point, it's become really flattening. And I think it is a little... I, I personally push against that word. Now obviously, everyone should be using the language that they want. obviously. I want to clarify that. I am in no ways telling saying someone don't use the word survivor if that is the word that is working for you. Absolutely not. Of course. I, however, have really embraced the word victim because I think the word victim puts the focus squarely on not just what happened, but the but the perpetrator, the predator, right? When you talk about a victim, you are innately talking about someone who did something bad, right? Whereas survivor, you can survive a lot of things. You can survive an earthquake, you can survive, you know, a natural disaster, you can you can survive a building falling down. You can also survive violence, right? But you can also survive a whole bunch of other things, right? Uh, Surviving is a word. You can survive cancer. Surviving is a word that is a lot more inclusive. And so shifts the focus away from, oh, someone, probably a man, enacted violence on me. Whereas I feel like the word victim points to that a lot more clearly and is also a lot more uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable. We don't, Women, we do not want to think of ourselves as victims, partially because of victim blaming and the way that our culture has defined the word victim and placed all of this. Like, if you're a victim, you're going to be victim blaming, right? Like, we have made all of these associations and these connections to the word victim. But I really think that victim is a more accurate word, is a truer word. It is a harder word, but I think that it should be. We should all be uncomfortable when we are talking about sexual violence and sexual assault and grooming. We should be uncomfortable when we're talking about it. It is not my job as a victim to make you feel better. Right. So I know that that's kind of a a little bit of a radical way of thinking about it, but I don't know. I feel really strongly about that. Um, And sort of to ask about victim blaming, I mean, really, I think the way that I got (laughs) the way that I really got on the other side of that was finding rage, was finding anger about what happened to me was, you know, also like finding kindness, finding empathy for 17 and 18 year old Allison. Um, you know, in the book, my acknowledgement is, um, which I sort of thought was really corny when I wrote and I was like, I don't know. Then it was funny because a lot of people reached, <laughs> reached out and said how much they liked it or like how much it was moving to them. And the acknowledgement was um, to my grandmother who would be so scandalized and so proud to my mother who will never read this. She has not. Um, she's been incredibly supportive, incredibly supportive of me and this project and my writing and this book, but she has chosen not to read it, which I understand. Um, and then to my 17 year old self who needed this book most of all. And, you know, I just feel so strongly about that. I mean, I did, I needed this book and I wish that I'd had this book. And I'm just so honored every single time I get a message from someone saying this this helped me. I saw myself in this. I feel understood, I feel seen, I feel heard, you know, um because that's an experience I didn't get to have, and I think hearing from all those other people, the fact that I have so much ooh, like innate empathy and uh you know these protective urges um and this kindness towards these other victims and survivors who reach out to me, it of course forced me to extend those same feelings to myself, to my younger self. So I think it's both a mixture of getting angry at the people who deserve my anger (laughs) and also seeing myself in others and being able to reflect my feelings of empathy and kindness and understanding than to myself so going on. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we love journeys it was a journey
0: hey guys this is faith here um, I just wanted to let you know that we are actually going to be dividing this into two parts um, just because of how long the interview was and wanted to make it to good podcast episodes um, again thank you guys for listening I do want to give the disclaimer that while um, a lot of this is based on, um, or talks about, you know, female student relationships with male teachers. We do recognize and acknowledge that this happens both genders. Um, so a lot of the speak in here is gendered, um, Miss Wood is basing this, you know, off of her own experience and anecdotal experience. Um, but we do want to acknowledge and remind people that sexual violence does happen to, you know, any and all genders. It does not discriminate. It is something that impacts all. Um, But thank you guys for listening and we will see you on in the next podcast episode where we finish part two with Miss Wood. Thanks.